0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Billy the Kid. Now let's return to our story about Billy the Kid. With McNabb killed, Doc Skerlock became the third person designated as the regulator's leader. While the cavalry managed to briefly stop open violence in Lincoln, this pause was only brief. James Dolan operated a cattle ranch near the Seven Rivers trading post southeast of Lincoln. Skerlock figured that most of the individuals mentioned in outstanding warrants he could serve would be hanging around this location. On May 15th, he led a raid on the ranch with over 20 men, including several Latinos, recruited to present a united community front against Dolan and Company. The only person of note present was Camp Handyman Manuel Segovia, known as the possible killer of Frank McNabb. The regulators took him prisoner, absconded with numerous horses, and stampeded the cattle into the wilderness. Segovia predictably wound up dead on the ride back to Lincoln, probably at the hands of Billy the Kid himself. The raid turned out to be a bad idea. As all of Dolan's property was foreclosed by Thomas Catron, the regulators were actually destroying the assets of the wealthiest and most powerful politician in the state. Catron was enraged, but for the moment the situation stabilized, the AG officially content with complaining via conventional agencies. Through a technicality, Governor Axtell removed Sheriff Copeland and replaced him with Dolan Confederate George Pepin. Federal, not territorial, warrants were drawn up for the murder of Buckshot Roberts, the justification being that Blazer's Mill was officially on an Indian reservation. Billy the Kid was now wanted under federal and territorial indictments. The regulators ignored these indictments. In fact, Alexander McSween decided that he would defend himself in Lincoln, and by July, over 60 individuals aligned with him, concentrating themselves in buildings near McSween's residence in Lincoln. Sheriff Pepin had a posse, armed supporters totaling about 40 men. On July 15th, this group brazenly began firing at the McSween house, not knowing or perhaps not caring that the kid and others were stationed nearby. Returned gunfire drove the posse back towards the Dolan store and the other posse headquarters, the Wortley Hotel. The battle for Lincoln remained a stalemate until the cavalry, again repeatedly asked by neutral citizens to intercede, showed up with a contingent armed with both a howitzer and a gatling gun and camped in the immediate vicinity of McSween territory. Some of McSween's lukewarm supporters assumed that the heavily armed cavalry would side with Sheriff Pepin and hastily fled, leaving the McSween contingent with about 20 combatants. Pepin could also fire from long range at McSween's house. The regulators could not fire back without potentially hitting a member of the cavalry. They withdrew into McSween's large U-shaped adobe structure. The windows shuttered with bricks piled up for additional fortification. Sensing an advantage, Pepin ordered several men to attempt to burn down the McSween house. The regulators initially repulsed this attack, but eventually a fire started in the house's stable area and slowly progressed into the main residence. By mid-afternoon, any women and children, including McSween's wife, fled. As the sun set, the remaining defenders huddled in the last remaining room, a kitchen that led to the back door. It soon became clear that the regulators were going to have to make a run for it, through the backyard of the house and across a vacant lot. The first five men to try to break out included Billy the Kid, Jim French, and the kid's good friend, Tom O'Folliard. Gunfire erupted when Pepin's posse, hidden behind the fence along the backyard, spotted the five running towards the timberline of the river that bordered the northern part of the town four out of the first five made it, but heavy gunfire then drove the rest of the regulators back into the house, including McSween. Although there is some debate over the specifics of what happened next, it is believed that the posse yelled at McSween that they had a warrant for his arrest, and when he emerged shouting that he would never surrender, he was cut down in a hail of bullets. Only a handful of the other occupants were able to escape without being killed or wounded. The remnants of the regulators regrouped at Franco's Ranch about 10 miles away in Hondo, New Mexico. Having left their horses behind, they did little to endear themselves, first stealing any horses they could from local farms in the area and then mounting a raid on the Mescalero Apache Indian Agency. Billy and the other regulators were able to acquire new horses, but a government employee was killed during the exchange and now both civilians and the nearby command at Fort Stanton had a reason to pursue the kid and his gang. Sensing danger, this contingent decided that it might be high time to leave Lincoln County entirely. They headed for the Fort Sumner area, partying it up in various saloons along the way. The kid made it clear that eventually he wanted to return to Lincoln and have it out with the individuals responsible for killing McSween. But others had had enough. Frank and George Coe announced that they were heading to Colorado. Eventually, Charlie Beaudry and Doc Skurlock headed to the relative safety of Fort Sumner. Only Tom O'Folliard, Fred Waite, John Middleton, and Henry Brown accompanied the kid, now their leader, when they headed to the Texas Panhandle to sell the horses they had stolen in the previous weeks. After that business was concluded, three of the five decided they wanted to head east and stay out of New Mexico. In December of 1878, only Billy the Kid and Tom O'Folliard returned to the vicinity of Lincoln. The Kid was confronted by a politically different environment. The violence and chaos that pervaded the New Mexico Territory finally forced federal intervention. President Rutherford B. Hayes replaced Governor Axtell with Civil War General Lew Wallace, a bureaucratic and military jack-of-all-trades who immediately issued a general pardon to those not indicted, as well as a proclamation to allow the military to vanquish, quote, insurrection, unquote. This allowed soldiers greater leeway to intercede in the civil disputes that gripped Lincoln County. The local situation was also complicated by the presence of Alexander McSween's wife, as well as her attorney, Euston Chapman, who was pursuing any and all legal avenues against those they believed responsible for the death of Alexander McSween. Unfortunately, on the night of February 18, 1879, Chapman, a blustery, aggressive individual, ran into a band of currently neutral but intoxicated gunslingers with the kid a nearby spectator. Chapman wound up dead in the gutter, a development that added to local outrage and more demands for a restoration of stability. Wallace responded emphatically by replacing the complacent military presence with officers intent on rounding up the various combatants in Lincoln County. Quickly, Fort Stanton became the repository of the likes of James Dolan and Jesse Evans. Demonstrating his native intelligence, Billy the Kid, realizing he couldn't hide from a federal posse for very long, began communicating with Wallace officially by letter. In return for a pardon, he offered his testimony as a witness to the murder of Euston Chapman. After receiving the letter, Wallace, on March 17, 1878, secretly met alone with a 19-year-old, reiterating the pardon offer and reassuring the kid that he would protect him with a contrived arrest that would keep the outlaw safely behind bars. In a subsequent letter, Billy agreed to the deal— and along with Tom O'Fallyard was arrested in San Patricio. Wallace lived up to this part of the bargain, confining the kid in a private home in Lincoln, next to the general's own headquarters. But, after testifying before an April Lincoln grand jury about the murder of Chapman, no pardon was forthcoming. Any of the elements indicted for transgressions related to the Dolan Murphy-sponsored violence in Lincoln were acquitted or never tried jesse evans having fled to texas even worse judge bristol began the june session of the federal district court in Mesilla, intent on prosecuting billy for the murder of buckshot roberts billy did not want to risk such a hostile process and able to roam freely about lincoln despite his officially confined status he took off from lincoln and headed to las vegas new mexico another rowdy and wild new mexico town that hosted gamblers and desperados of all kinds He continued to Fort Sumner, where he hid out during the latter months of 1879. There, he assembled a group of men who made a living rustling cattle from the nearby Texas panhandle and selling these animals at below market prices back in New Mexico. Fort Sumner was actually a decommissioned U.S. military facility purchased in 1869 by a wealthy local cattle baron, Lucian Maxwell. Maxwell died in 1875, and the property was inherited by his son, Pete Maxwell. Fort Sumner had virtually no law enforcement presence, and Billy the Kid quickly became one of the more prominent criminals in the town, no doubt underlined by another saloon gunfight that left his adversary, Joe Grant, dead on the floor, shot three times in the head. Drunk and belligerent, Grant didn't notice when the kid examined his pistol and left the cylinder on an unloaded chamber. Asked about the incident later, the kid famously replied, Oh nothing, it was a game of two. I got there first. Typically there was no official investigation. The locals perceived the killing as just another typically violent barroom confrontation. This lackadaisical attitude about lawless violence, cattle rustling, and even counterfeiting in the region may have prompted Lincoln County voters to elect Pat Garrett as the county sheriff. Garrett was an acquaintance of Billy the Kid. He had even tended bar in Fort Sumner's most popular saloon. Six foot six and powerfully built, Garrett ran as an alternative to the current lawlessness in northern New Mexico. Federal authorities were also intent on cracking down on rampant counterfeiting through the efforts of Treasury agent Azaria Wilde, transferred to New Mexico from New Orleans. Wild eventually deputized Garrett, as well as other locals, including Bob Ollinger, to aid him in the pursuit of individuals believed involved in this scam, including Billy the Kid. In late 1880, robbery of the U.S. mail wagon in the Fort Sumner area was tied to the kid as well. This behavior shredded the tolerance of many Fort Sumner area residents, who increasingly viewed Billy the Kid as a lawless menace, necessitating apprehension. His notoriety was discussed in the region's newspapers, infamy that was eventually written up in the New York Sun, the first publication to designate him with the nickname Billy the Kid. The kid responded with yet another letter to Lou Wallace, but by now there was no chance of any kind of a deal, and Wallace responded by offering a reward of $500 for the apprehension of Billy the Kid. This development prompted the outlaw to contemplate leaving New Mexico altogether, an inclination that was amplified when he narrowly escaped capture during a December 19, 1880 ambush by Pat Garrett and other deputies in Fort Sumner itself a firefight that resulted in the death of the kid's longtime associate, Tom O'Folliard. The kid and his entourage of four other outlaws sought refuge in several nearby ranches, eventually fleeing to an abandoned stone cabin near the tiny hamlet of Stinking Springs. With a posse of 12 men and solid information from local residents, Garrett was determined to apprehend the kid, and he pursued him first to the ranch locations and then to the kid's stone refuge. At daybreak on December 22nd, Garrett had this location surrounded, and when an individual wearing a sombrero emerged to feed the gang's horses, Garrett, believing that the kid would not give up, had his men open fire. Once the kid was gunned down, Garrett reasoned that the others would surrender. This surprise attack mortally wounded the sombrero-clad outlaw, who staggered back inside. But it was not Billy the Kid it was his associate, Charlie Bodry. Bodry came back out and surrendered, but died in a matter of minutes. A few hours later, understanding that they could not escape, the rest of the outlaws surrendered as well. Pat Garrett first took his captives to Fort Sumner and then Las Vegas, New Mexico. There, a journalist interviewed Billy, the kid cheerfully responding to his questions with a lack of concern. What's the use of looking on the gloomy side of everything? The laughs on me this time. Billy was described as, quote, five feet eight inches, slightly built, lithe, weighing about 140 pounds, a frank and open countenance, looking like a schoolboy with a traditional silky fuzz on his upper lip, clear blue eyes with a roguish snap about them, light hair and complexion, unquote. Sheriff Garrett was intent on delivering the four men to federal authorities in Santa Fe. He wanted the $500 reward. But Lou Wallace had skipped town, temporarily heading back to Washington, D.C. His temporary replacement stiffed Garrett, but the people of Santa Fe took up a collection and gratefully paid him in full. Billy the Kid remained in the Santa Fe jail for the next three months. His activity, limited to writing several letters to Lou Wallace, all unanswered. In late March, the Kid was transported to Mesilla to stand trial for the murders of Buckshot Roberts and Sheriff Brady. Although Judge Bristol eventually dismissed the federal charges for the Roberts murder, Billy was convicted and condemned for the killing of Sheriff Brady. Judge Bristol ordered that Billy should be taken to Lincoln and designated May 13th as the day of the kids hanging. On the night of April 16th, 1881, a group of deputies covertly began the transport of Billy by wagon from Messia to Lincoln, Among the deputies was Robert Bob Olinger, who delighted in verbally tormenting Billy during the entire trip, displaying a shotgun and explaining how he had packed it with extra buckshot so he could kill Billy during his inevitable attempt to escape. Arriving in Lincoln on April 21st, Billy the Kid was lodged not in the notoriously insecure town jail, but in the newly designated county courthouse, the building formerly housing the Dolan Murphy store run by the house shackled and handcuffed billy was to be under constant guard in a room next to pat garrett's office the two deputies watching him were ollinger and james bell an individual who was far more pleasant still a chalk line was drawn across the floor of the room and billy was warned that if he crossed the line he would be shot pat garrett knew that billy would spend every waking moment attempting to devise a plan of escape Nevertheless, on April 28th, Garrett was confident enough in his subordinates to have left on a tax-collecting trip to White Oaks, New Mexico. This despite having responsibility for five other prisoners responsible in the killing of four individuals in a property dispute. Such a large group had to be taken to the nearby Wortley Hotel for their evening supper, and Ollinger escorted them for that purpose. Billy took his meals at the courthouse but chose this moment to ask Bell to let him use the outhouse out back. A routine request, Deputy Bell probably thought nothing was unusual until he escorted Billy up the steep stairwell that led to the second floor of the structure. Billy got to the top of the stairs and turned sideways, briefly out of sight for a split second, but long enough to slip one of his hands out of the handcuffs. When Bell emerged through the opening, Billy attacked him viciously, knocking him to the ground and eventually getting Bell's pistol out of its holster. Bell attempted to flee down the stairs, but Billy shot him fatally, the deputy staggering out of the back door of the courthouse and into the arms of Godfrey Goss, an elderly man who tended a garden behind the building. Bell died in Goss's arms, the old man placing him on the ground and fleeing in the direction of the Wortley to warn Ollinger. The other deputy had heard the gunshots and was already heading in their direction. As Bob Ollinger opened the gate at the side of the courthouse, he heard a voice coming from the nearest window on the second floor. Looking up, the last thing he ever saw was Billy the Kid holding Ollinger's own gun, the shotgun that the deputy repeatedly taunted Billy with. Billy the Kid poked the weapon out of the window, and after greeting his jailer by simply stating, Hello, Bob. He pulled the triggers on both barrels. Ollinger was killed instantly by the massive blast. Billy the Kid then got an axe to separate the shackles around his feet and rounded up other weapons, including two shotguns and a half a dozen pistols. He expected that some of the townspeople might want to prevent his escape, and speaking from the courthouse balcony with the crowd that eventually gathered, he apologized for shooting Deputy Bell but made it quite clear that he would kill anyone who attempted to prevent his escape. With that, the kid emerged from the courthouse and got on a horse saddled for him by Goss. No one made a move to stop him, knowing that the now heavily armed kid would not hesitate to gun them down. In no particular hurry, he ambled out of town, staying with various friends along the way, still loyal enough to put him up for the night. Although most advised him that he should head to Mexico, or at the very least out of the territory, the kid had his heart set on Fort Sumner. He was still quite popular there, especially among the ladies of the Latino community, who seemed especially attracted to the bad boy Desperado. Most likely he was specifically interested in seeing Paulita Maxwell, the sister of Pete Maxwell. It took nine days and more than a few miles on foot to reach Fort Sumner, which he did successfully on May 7th. He spent much of the month of May at various farms and ranches, not exactly in hiding. Routinely, he ventured into Fort Sumner itself to attend the dances that were a tradition in the region and to romance any number of young women. Most of the regional newspapers theorized that Fort Sumner was most likely Billy the Kid's current refuge. National tabloids were not only breathlessly anticipating what the Kid would do next— They were also painting a portrait of a half-crazed murderer, hell-bent on wiping out any vestige of lawful authority and society. Lou Wallace posted another $500 reward, but left New Mexico on May 30th to begin his tenure as American ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. Perhaps he did not wish to appear in any way responsible if Billy's rampage continued indefinitely. Wallace also left New Mexico with a manuscript he finished during his stint as governor. This novel containing biblical and Christian themes was entitled Ben-Hur and eventually became the best-selling American novel of the 19th century. For now, though, it was the kid's sensational escape that not only made national news, it also put Garrett in the difficult position of having to do something to respond to such a brazen act of lawless defiance. But, despite knowing that Billy was somewhere in the Fort Sumner area, Garrett also knew that the town's residents were either too frightened of or too friendly with the kid to help the sheriff bring the outlaw to justice. He would need help locating and apprehending Billy, and that would take time. In late June, he corresponded with one of the Fort Sumner ranchers who helped corner Billy at Stinking Springs. This informant verified that Billy was hiding out near the town, but the rancher was laying low, knowing that the kid would harm him if they crossed paths. Garrett's best information came from John W. Poe, a former investigator for the Texas Panhandle Stock Association. Poe worked for this organization in White Oaks, New Mexico, the Center for Illicit Sales of Cattle Stolen from Texas Ranches. Poe had gotten a tip that Billy was definitely hanging around Fort Sumner, occasionally even visible in the town itself. Garrett figured at the very least that he should surreptitiously reconnoiter the town and get more information. On July 10th, with another deputy, Tip McKinney, the small group headed for Fort Sumner. The plan was for Poe, who was unknown in the town, to head for the local saloon and see if there was any gossip about the kid or his whereabouts. Although Poe, as an outsider, was greeted with suspicion, he passed himself off as a traveler from White Oaks on the way to his home in the nearby Texas Panhandle. He got nowhere with the locals and then proceeded to the house of a local postmaster named Milner Rudolph, where Poe presented a letter of introduction from Pat Garrett. Although Rudolph graciously served Poe dinner, he completely clammed up on the topic of Billy the Kid, obviously terrified at the mere mention of the name. Reluctantly, Poe left and met up with Garrett and McKinney at a spot a few miles outside of town. There, the three men decided to head for Fort Sumner, where they would sneak into town and keep an eye on a house of a girl known to be one of Billy's sweethearts. It was a little past 9 p.m. on July fourteenth, eighteen 1881. Unfortunately, what happened next is in dispute, and much of the description of the rest of the night's events come from Pat Garrett's own account subsequently published in his biography of Billy, a book that is now believed to be self-aggrandizing and inaccurate. Whether Garrett knew of the romance of Paulita Maxwell and Billy and was aware that Pete Maxwell was unhappy with his situation, or whether Maxwell even conspired with Garrett to set Billy up, The three men quietly made their way to Maxwell's large house. Garrett entered what he knew to be Maxwell's bedroom, the windows and doors thrown open to provide some comfort from the summer temperatures. He sat on the edge of the bed, and as Maxwell stirred, the sheriff asked him if Billy was in Fort Sumner. At the same time, Billy the Kid emerged from a nearby dwelling where he was staying with a friend. Carrying a knife and his pistol, he was intent on cutting some beef from a carcass that was hanging from Maxwell's porch, and the kid headed in that direction. In his stocking feet, and without a hat, he practically stumbled into Poe and McKinney, who did not recognize him. Pointing his gun in their direction, Billy then warily backed into the doorway of Pete Baxwell's bedroom. According to Garrett, the kid then approached Maxwell's bed and asked who the strangers outside were. Maxwell sat up and said loudly to Garrett, that's him. In the darkness, Billy could make out the dark shape of someone else on the bed, but he hesitated for an instant. ¿Quién es? ¿Quién es? Who are you? he asked repeatedly in Spanish, hoping to throw off anyone who might suspect his true identity. Garrett recognized Billy's voice, drew his pistol, and fired twice at the retreating outlaw. Moaning, Billy collapsed to the ground without firing a shot. A bullet just above his heart most likely killed him in a matter of seconds. As Garrett fired his weapon, Maxwell initially jumped out of his bed and scrambled to the door, afraid that the angry Billy would attack anyone in his vicinity. Garrett was right behind him, Poe remonstrating him already that he had killed an innocent man, not the outlaw. The sheriff was confident that the man he shot was Billy the Kid. I am sure that was him, for I know his voice too well to be mistaken." Pete Maxwell lit a candle and placed it on the open windowsill. Garrett and his deputies came back into the bedroom and examined the body, sprawled on the floor, a long knife and pistol beside the dead man. The identity was unmistakable. Already the sound of pistol shots drew townspeople to the Maxwell home, and word quickly spread that the kid was dead. Many of the women present, including Paulita Maxwell, cried. The men in the quickly gathering crowd were angry and armed forcing the Lincoln lawmen to barricade themselves in one of Maxwell's bedrooms. The next morning, a coroner's jury presided over by Postmaster Rudolph quickly pronounced Garrett's actions as justifiable homicide, and in his written official report, Rudolph added that, quote, the gratitude of the whole community is owed to said Garrett for his deed. After a brief wake, the body was placed in a wooden coffin, taken to the town cemetery and buried next to the graves of Tom O'Folyard and Charlie Beaudry. Pat Garrett lived for another 27 years after shooting Billy the Kid, years marked by bad luck, financial insecurity, and professional failure. Many looked upon the murder of Billy the Kid as an unfair fight in which Garrett took advantage of a helpless adversary or even something more unseemly, with the kid lured to his death by Pete Maxwell and shot by Garrett in the back. Garrett became so unpopular that he did not run for re-election. He also felt compelled to produce a ghost-written biography of Billy the Kid, giving his own version of the events surrounding the outlaw's death. While the book sold poorly, it was the source of much of the material written about Billy the Kid's life well into the 20th century. Most of its information, either self-serving or apocryphal. Figuring a relocation to the Texas panhandle might regenerate his business career, Garrett became involved in several unsuccessful commercial ventures involving irrigation. All of them failed. The notorious 1896 murder of prominent New Mexico businessman and politician Colonel Albert Fountain and his eight-year-old son prompted Garrett's appointment to the position of sheriff by New Mexico's governor. Garrett successfully got indictments for the murders, but was outwitted in the courtroom by the attorney for the defendants, Albert Fall, another infamous New Mexico politician and the eventual Secretary of the Interior implicated in the Teapot Dome scandal. Familiar with characters from the Old West, President Theodore Roosevelt subsequently appointed Garrett to the sinecure of Collector of Customs at El Paso, Texas. Even in this relatively unchallenging post, Garrett soon became a political embarrassment and was not reappointed. Broke, he returned to Bear Canyon near Las Cruces and a cattle ranch leased from a local property owner. Garrett became embroiled in a bitter dispute over the lease to this land that eventually led to his death at the hands of a local ranch hand who was ultimately acquitted at trial for Garrett's murder. By then, the former sheriff was so unpopular that various conspiracy theories emerged naming several individuals behind a plot. Like Billy the Kid, Garrett's death remains controversial to this day. It was utterly predictable that, like most famous American outlaws, rumors that Billy the Kid actually survived and lived out a long life under an assumed identity have surfaced over time. The most prominent of these individuals was one brushy Bill Roberts, Much of the Robert saga revolves around the fact that Poe and McKinney had never seen Billy the Kid and couldn't identify him, and Garrett had a self-interest in gaining credit for the killing and hastily burying the body. One wonders what body was observed during the wake and why so many would turn out for a funeral if they knew Billy wasn't really dead. But one should never let common sense get in the way of good conspiracy theory. In 2004, a legal fight over an attempt to exhume the bodies of both Billy the Kid and his mother went nowhere, stoking even more rumors that the purported grave of Billy the Kid is actually empty, a secret the town fathers would just as soon you not know. The graveyard, Pete Maxwell's house, and much of Fort Sumner was rearranged when the Pecos River decided to alter its course over time. However, the town cemetery today contains not one, but two markers devoted to Billy the Kid, both additions installed long after his original burial. Although a potential windfall has prompted numerous attempts to authenticate photographs of Billy the Kid, today we are left with only one picture that has been definitively accepted as genuine. Taken in 1880, a year before his death at the age of 21, Billy the Kid stands at an angle his hand gripping the barrel of his Winchester rifle, a pistol holstered in his belt. Wearing a dark cowboy hat at a jaunty angle, he also sports a half-smile that unmistakably reveals both his buck teeth and Irish heritage. Unfortunately, this tintype is black and white. The numerous scarves, vest, and sweater that Billy is sporting would clearly be quite impressive in color. Even so, this photograph is a unique documentation of an American who is truly one-of-a-kind. Thank you for listening to Part 2 of this podcast about Billy the Kid. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life by Robert Utley, And To Hell on a Fast Horse, The Untold Story of Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett by Mark Lee Gardner. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.